All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by Nexo, the only lender offering instant crypto credit lines, which let you use digital assets as collateral to get cash in 45 different fiat currencies and stable coins. You can also park idle assets with Nexo and earn up to 8% annually. It's a company that's a strategic partner of exchanges, OTC desks, and crypto funds, all of which borrow, lend, and grow their assets using Nexo. Explore Nexo.io or reach them at institutions at Nexo.io to learn more. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only tested crypto tax software. Luca's listened to your feedback. Now you can calculate capital gains and see the results using three different accounting methods side by side, all for free. You only pay if you want to access their detailed tax reports. Luca supports unlimited transaction uploads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refund. Luca Tax wants to help Masari's Unqualified Opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code MasariTax and you'll get $5 off the normal price at $39.95 when downloading today. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. Have you seen what the Crypto.com team's been up to lately? Talking about the MCO Visa card. It's a beautiful metal card you can top up with crypto and spend anywhere Visa's accepted. You get up to 5% back on all your spending, plus 100% rebates on Spotify, Netflix, and now Amazon Prime Travel. How about unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates? So many perks in just one card. You can download the Crypto.com app and reserve yours today. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with for exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiot and I'm here with another famous crypto Twitter personality. I'm talking about Crypto Dad former chairman of CFTC, Chris Giancarlo, who is now senior counsel at Wilkie Farr and Gallagher. We're going to talk about a number of the initiatives that he's been working on more recently um, and uh, the digitization of the American dollar. Uh, I think the the nickname and, and moniker of Crypto Dad is well-deserved. We're going to talk about how Chris fell down the crypto rabbit hole, what he's excited about going forward, and what we should all be looking out for generally in the U.S. regulatory regime over the course of the next couple of years. So, Chris, uh, for starters, thank you for joining. And um, I think you have a lot of fans within the community based on how proactive and, and kind of forward-thinking you, know, you and, and some of your colleagues at the CFTC have been. But um, I always like to start with the origin story because everybody's starting at a different period of, uh, of time and, 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 you know, very often cases wildly different contexts. And, uh, of course, you're going to come at crypto from a very unique uh, path, uh, having you know served in, in uh, regulatory capacity for for many of the formative years uh, of this industry. So, so why don't we start by just walking through uh, your first exposure to crypto, maybe your first impressions and how they evolved over time, and and then we'll ultimately get to the role that you have now as a non regulator uh, that's actually on the, on the bleeding edge of some of the initiatives we're building on the stablecoin uh, space in particular. Thanks, Ryan. You know, it, I came to it in a very interesting way, and that is not uh, actually as a regulator, but I, before going and spending five years at the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, I spent 30 years in the private sector 
And from the year 2000 until 2014, I was building one of the world's, what is today, one of the world's largest trading platforms, electronic trading platforms for over-the-counter derivatives mm -hmm. uh, known as swaps. Uh, in 2000, I, I started on that endeavor and over the next, next several years with a firm called GFI Group, we built the world's first electronic execution trading capacity for swaps. And we uh, were very much like a lot of probably of your listeners as entrepreneurs. We raised three rounds of private equity financing. And in 2005, we took the company public, uh, first on the NASDAQ and then later on to the New York Stock Exchange in a series of very, very successful public offerings. In 2008, I found ourselves right at the center of the financial crisis. Uh, we were the exchange for things that weren't trading on an exchange things that measured the counterparty credit risk of the failure of one large money center bank to another large money center bank, basically the failure of the Wall Street financial system. And at that moment, I remember calls that we were receiving from the, from the Federal Reserve asking us, well, exactly what do you guys do again? Uh, and and how is it that your marketplace is measuring the potential for failure of the banking system? Mm -hmm. And it struck me at that point in time that regulators had no better way of understanding the risk than to calling around to shops like mine to get a, a handle on what was going on in the marketplace. And I became mm -hmm. an advocate for a number of the reforms that made their way into the Dodd-Frank Act, namely the uh, regulation of the swaps market and the greater transparency, the greater ability for that market to reveal information. And in that, I became an advocate for the blockchain. Had we had a blockchain in um, place for the credit exposure of banks to be registered on, we would have then had a much better picture of the, the current risk. In fact, at the time, it was perceived that the gross amount of protection written against the failure of Lehman Brothers was measured at $400 billion. Well, we now know that when you net download those exposures, the net exposure of a failure of Lehman Brothers was less than $9 billion. Had we had a blockchain in place then, we would have known that. And had we known that, our policy responses would have been a lot more targeted, a lot more calibrated, and I think a lot more effective in terms of addressing the financial crisis. So how does that get me to Bitcoin? Well, that's why I joined the commission. That's why I left the private sector and went into government to help the commission implement the core tenets of the Dodd-Frank Act. But while I was there, I took a much broader view. It struck me that not only is the swaps market, but in fact, so much of our financial market infrastructure is antiquated, it's aged, and in some cases, it's obsolete. You know, Ryan, if we look around us today and we see our our public transportation system, we see our bridges, our tunnels, our airports that were once state-of-the-art in the 20th century have become antiquated, in some cases obsolete, as we go into this new digital 21st century. Well, the same is true about so much of our financial market infrastructure, whether it is the way we do consumer lending based upon LIBOR, a rate that was became obsolete decades ago, or whether the way we handle um, securitization of mortgages in a lot of practices that actually exacerbate that lack of transparency into counterparty credit risk and the need for modernization of that. And finally, the core architecture of our own currency, the dollar, 
you know, the fiat dollar is still a very much of an analog instrument in a digital world. And that's why I've become a proponent for the digital dollar project. So as we go in our conversation today, I'd like to talk about these projects. But my core thesis since leaving the commission, my core thesis about money is that so much of the architecture is, is aged, it's, it's, it's analog, and it needs to be modernized for a new digital, new digital generation, a new digital future. I think most people within the industry would certainly agree with that. You know, you, you talk a, a bit about the why and the inspiration and, and you make the aha moment seem much more fluid uh, than you know, some people who, who t- tell the tale of their proverbial fall down the rabbit hole. Right? You, under- you understood the back end systems. You understood um, the need for transparency in, in terms of legacy financial infrastructure. Um, whereas most people, I think, that first get into Bitcoin see the Fed and money printing and fiat currencies and, you know, Keynesian economics. And, and they, they basically just say, you know, what, we need to blow up everything and start from scratch. I find that in more recent years, particularly with people that, that have deep financial uh, experience like yourself, uh, the temptation is not there to blow up everything. It's to look at what has worked traditionally and what works uh, with cryptocurrencies uniquely and then try to figure out where the intersection is. Um, so I'm curious, you know, a lot of the initial exposure is going to be Bitcoin, right? So how do you feel about Bitcoin as an asset right now versus underlying blockchain technology? Because it became a meme of sorts in 2015 after the, the last correction that, you know, blockchain good, Bitcoin bad, right? <laughs> from, from like legacy financial players. That has, that tide has started to, to uh, move in the other direction quite a bit. But I do still feel that if you're from traditional finance, your your uh, area of greatest interest is still on the stablecoin side of things versus crypto assets. So we're, we're gonna we will talk about stablecoins because I think that's one of the biggest trends of the year and certainly where you're focused a lot of time right now. But how do you personally and and how did the commission wrap its head around Bitcoin as an asset from a regulatory standpoint uh, in terms of where the dividing lines are uh, and and how you would actually define the asset and the, the entities that were actually facilitating uh, activity, whether it's trading, custody, what have you, around that particular asset? All right. Well, first of all, I, I believe that the, um, that, that, the, that the concept that Bitcoin is inherently designed to be off the governmental or regulatory grid is not inherent in the Satoshi white paper. That mm-hmm. comes separately. In fact, the Satoshi white paper talks about Bitcoin as a means of not being uh, to avoiding intermediation by commercial entities, by banks and others, but not there's, there's no reference there to being off regulatory or government grids. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think that that belief in it comes not necessarily inherent to its original design, but is, but that others that, that may believe that and they're welcome to believe that, but I don't think that's inherent to Bitcoin itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, uh, to get to the point about uh, how we dealt with Bitcoin, you know, there's an old saying that um, uh, uh, where you sit determines where you stand. If you look at the different um, institutional, and and now I'll talk about governmental institutional approaches to Bitcoin, if you almost identify the nature of the institution, you can almost determine how they stand. So take take central banks, for example. Mm Central banks of island economies, and by island economies, I include not just 
islands like Bermuda or Caymans, but also island economies like Switzerland or Singapore that are basically offshore banking centers for continental um, uh, economies. They, they have long tradition in safeguarding assets. The, the whole value proposition of the Swiss economy is to safeguard assets from continental countries in Europe. The same is true about Singapore. So mm-hmm. for them, Bitcoin is just another asset to be safeguarded and protected. And you, therefore, you look around and you'll see that the, the regulatory developments that are coming in those places from Bermuda to Malta to, to, to Switzerland to Singapore are very open open to this asset class because it, it follows a tradition that goes way back. If you look at continental large economy central banks, and I, I take the United States aside for a second, their initial reaction to Bitcoin is, is very, very conservative uh, to, the, to the almost to disdain at some point to, um, to um, um, a fear and, and loathing in other cases. Well, why? Mm-hmm. Because they're safeguarding a domestic currency um, that has broad, not just uh, domestic use, but reserve currency status. So their concern is there. Then you go, and I think the United States, however, didn't fall directly into that trap because the United States has a long tradition of innovation. And because the dollar's reserve currency status is so strong that I don't think the, the U.S. reacted with as much, say, fear and, and, and disdain as perhaps other continental economy and central banks. Mm-hmm. Then look at, look at market regulators. Um, market regulators traditionally see a new asset class as one where their concern is primarily orderly trading and, 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 and regulatory um, um, uh, um, uh, consistency and orderliness. And, mm-hmm. and really that's our orientation at the, was at the CFTC with one, I think, then unique element. And that is, Unlike most of the world's even market regulators, the CFTC has a process of self-certification. Some, some very wise, um, early, an earlier generation realized that if you asked a regulator, a politically appointed regulator, to approve a new product, the chances are unlikely they'd ever approve it. Why? Because if something went wrong, that could be a, a, a hindrance, if not a, a permanent end to their political career. So what the CFTC does, and again, uniquely, I've compared this to other market regulators around the world, CFTC commissioners do not approve new products. What we do is we ask the exchange to certify that the product needs a series of core principles. And if it does, the product goes forward. So when Bitcoin came to the CFTC, we were very concerned that it met the core principles. But once it was established that it did, the path was forward. In fact, it almost became a case of preserving that CFTC unique approach that mm-hmm. any, any attempt to stop Bitcoin futures from being launched would have actually done more damage to that traditional structure than it was. So um, it was- can, can we, Yeah, I just wanna be a little bit more uh, specific because uh, some of my listeners, uh, alarm bells might be going off when you say when Bitcoin came to the CFTC, right? So, so talk about that process because obviously there was no company bringing Bitcoin, so to speak. So when you when you say sure. uh, Bitcoin, so are you are you referring to spot markets or the futures products in particular? Yeah. So let me drill down. In 2015, the CFTC, as part of a broad review of new asset classes. Mm-hmm. Um, declared Bitcoin to fit its statutory def- the, the CFTC, the Commodity Exchange Act statutory definition of a commodity. 
Mm -hmm. Then over the next um, uh, uh, 18 months, there was a lot of interesting intellectual debate around that, but the idea gained a foothold. In 2017, the CFTC was approached by two of its registered exchanges, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Chicago Board Options Exchange, about their desire to self-certify Bitcoin futures for trading on their exchanges. And that's why I say when Bitcoin came to the CFTC, it came intellectually in 2015 as an analysis that the staff did, but mm -hmm. it came commercially in 2017 as at uh, 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 first informal alerts by those two exchanges, and then over the course of the next several months, formal um, um, self-certification notifications that they intended to self-certify these instruments and launch trading on their mm -hmm. exchanges, which actually took place in December 2017. When does something like this get to your desk or, or any of the commissioner's desks? Because I would tend to think about the market cap or the, the degree of trading that was going on. You know, maybe you have a sandbox group that's looking at emerging assets, but um, at what point beyond just an exploration and a you know, talking points memo, um, did you personally or any of the other commissioners personally uh, start to allocate real time to these products? So the exchanges are uh, quite astute. Um, uh, they, uh, they know how to both work with the staff uh, in the formal um, communication process, but also um, visit with, you know, call, schedule time to visit with the five commissioners, um, alert them as a courtesy matter as to uh, what was coming down the pike, that they would be submitting formal self-certification processes, address any concerns, answer any questions. And that was taking place all throughout the, um, uh, at, I would say, in the end of the fourth quarter, in the third quarter, and throughout the fourth quarter of 2017. Yep. So I, I can't tell you offhand. Um, well, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, because, yeah I mean, that, I, I that's remember, when it became material, right? But in 2015, yeah. I remember meeting with um, a, a, a number of um, uh, commercial Bitcoin proponents that were launching mm -hmm. early exchanges, that were doing other financing others. So, you know, it, I joined the commission in June of 2014. Um, I was aware of Bitcoin just um, myself in, in, uh, uh, before I joined the commission. And I remember as a commissioner in 2015, late 2014, early 2015, beginning conversations with a number of uh, 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 players that are still well-known players uh, in the Bitcoin space. Were you able to purchase Bitcoin or was there any trading restrictions at the CFTC level? Okay, so a couple of things. One is the CFTC ha does not restrict um, uh, its employees from owning commodities, right? Uh, because if it did, they couldn't put gasoline in their car and they couldn't put bread on the shelf, right? <laughs> yep. Couldn't, couldn't own coins. Um, mm -hmm. um, so um, the CFTC, and, and it, to the extent that the CFTC determined that Bitcoin was a commodity, um, the CFTC could not restrict um, uh, uh, um, its employees from owning commodities. I made a personal decision while I served on the commission not to be an owner of crypto assets 
because I recognized early on it would be a major issue for policy development at the agency. And I wanted to be able to speak to that policy development in a way that nobody would ever question my own personal interests. So if I was an owner of Bitcoin, um, uh, people might question my, my, my uh, in, in integrity in policy development. Now, I did say in my hearing in February 2018, where I was uh, received the moniker of Crypto Dad, that um, uh, uh, my, my, I have a niece who is a big aficionado who owns, earned, got into Bitcoin very early on, has done very well in that regard. And um, uh, I, I believe my children own crypto assets, although I don't, uh, I don't want to know too much because, again, I don't want people to question whether my policy positions are in any way designed to help my family's economic interests. When, uh, now, remind me, when did you leave the commission? What was the date? July 2019. Okay. And um, I continue not to own crypto assets because I remain outspoken on the issue of crypto assets. And, 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 you, and you still have some you know, significant influence on, on your former colleagues and, and other you know, members of the staff, I'm sure. So that, that certainly makes sense. Um, is there a, a, one more question on, on Bitcoin, and then I want to spend the rest of the time on, on the Digital Dollar um, Foundation. But uh, there, there is a rumor, uh, and I don't know how real it is or, or, or what you might be able to comment on, that one of the reasons that we finally saw futures was that it could serve as, as a bit of a dampener on some of the rampant speculation in late Q4 in the crypto asset markets. Is there truth to that or was it coincidental? How did you think about the risks of waiting toward, uh, versus approving that particular product just to create some, um, not downward pressure, but some, uh, like a governor on the golf cart, right? Uh, sure. You're going too fast, uh, too, uh, too steeply. And, and, and this could potentially help you know, more sophisticated players enter and help normalize price discovery. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for an opportunity actually to address that very issue. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, as I said, before I went to the commission, I spent 14 years operating uh, over-the-counter trading markets for derivative products. Um, I consider myself a real student of markets. Uh, in fact, uh, I probably am more of an aficionado of of market theory and, and, and market development than perhaps any, any particular asset class. I believe in markets. I believe that the reason why you and I enjoy the affluence we do in, in the developed world is because of the, 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 the strength of our markets, the, the dy dynamism of markets. I think that market economics are the, are, are the greatest creator of wealth in the world. And I truly believe um, this strongly, almost uh, even more than commercially, almost as a moral issue that markets are, allow people to rise out of poverty into the middle class and are a great gift to humans. Um, uh, I also understand how markets work, okay? If you have one-way markets, they are not efficient. You need markets where people that believe in a value proposition can express it, whether that's upwards or downwards. Now, mm -hmm. let's go back to the rule of law. The CFTC, as I mentioned, has a self-certification process for derivative products. What do derivatives do? Derivatives allow you to take a view that a price is too low, but also that a price is too high. Okay? When, when we receive the self-certification process, um, uh, we examine the self-certification process for Bitcoin futures strictly on its merits, whether it met the core principles, and then with that, go forward. However, being a student of markets, I readily understood what the uh, um, launching 
of a future would mean for Bitcoin. And that would mm-hmm. be that people who thought that Bitcoin at 14,000, 15,000, 16,000, 17,000, as it was advancing during the course of 2017, would ha- now have the ability to short that price. Okay, mm-hmm. we cannot be naive. Up until the launch of a future, there was no way for those who did not hold Bitcoin, but felt that the price was too high, could express that view and go in the opposite direction. Only the launch of a Bitcoin future or swap would enable that counter view to be expressed in a marketplace. So when we receive legitimate self-certification applications, um, it was certainly um, in my mind that the consequence could be, now it was not preordained. In fact, the people that went into the futures market may have said, you know what, the price is too low. But it was also now available that those who felt it was too high would be able to express that view. And the market would then determine at least in the futures price, where Mm -hmm. that market would go. So as I discussed, um, as we routinely do at federal regulatory agencies with the heads of other regulatory agencies, what was coming down the pike at our agency, um, I made known that the, the, the successful launch of Bitcoin futures may in fact put downward pressure on the Bitcoin price. And, um, uh, and and that's the that that's in fact what happened, um, uh, and I believe that the launch of Bitcoin futures definitely had an impact on the price of Bitcoin over the next uh, over the, over the year that followed in 20, 2018. It's it's interesting. I think that's a perfectly you know reasonable response. It makes sense. It, it's somewhat intuitive, and in hindsight, for most people in, in crypto that were around at that time, maybe we should have expected uh, some normalization and and, and you know some expression that many of the very outspoken, deep-pocketed institutional bears would be able to you know, finally express their, their opinion via shorts. Um, it's outside of your purview slightly, but, but there is some similarities to what you just talked about with the lack of ETF approval from the SEC side, because you've got these grayscale products that, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a great product for accredited investors, but it's terrible for retail investors because the only way that they can get exposure to this asset is through a, a premium to the underlying asset value because of this structural imbalance of short sellers and buyers in that ETF product in particular. Do you think that that's something um, that should get corrected sooner rather than later? And I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but... But I think, you know, I see some of these imbalances, other sophisticated, you know, players within crypto see these imbalances. And the natural reaction is for the accredited investors to just put that trade on and continue to recycle that capital and essentially dump on retail investors um, when all they really want is underlying exposure through their E-Trade account or Schwab or, or, or whoever their wealth manager is. Let me say a couple of things before turning to that, Ryan, because I do want to put it, because there's been controversy as to what I've said about Bitcoin futures, I want to make a couple of points. Mm-hmm. First of all, it, it is not a regulator's job to determine where a price for a commodity or a trading asset is. The last thing the marketplace should want is regulators saying, what is the right price? What you want regulators to do is make sure the market is, um, allows all comers, all viewpoints to be expressed, and so that the market determines what is the right price. Mm-hmm. And right price meaning, you know, it, it's, a, a crowd, it's the greatest example of crowdsourcing 
uh, uh, determination there is. And so um, uh, it's, it's not for regulators to say where the right price is. And I never purported to say that Bitcoin, 12,000, Bitcoin, 19,000 was right or wrong. That was for the market to determine and the market did. The yeah, second, I, 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 think, I think that makes sense. I, I guess, you know, my point is- I know I'm gonna come to your point in a second. Okay, okay, I, I just, go if I could, be, sure. again, because I wanna address the controversy around my remarks in this, I just wanna make three, mm -hmm. that, that point I wanna make two others. The second thing okay. is, we received uh, as a lot of pressure internationally to not allow Bitcoin futures to go forward because there were many, uh, in, in, especially at central banks around the world, who felt that the launch of Bitcoin futures would validate Bitcoin mm -hmm. um, and, 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 make, and legitimize it. And I received calls from overseas counterparties saying, find a way to stop the launch of Bitcoin futures because all you're doing is validating and legitimizing Bitcoin. And then, and we withstood that pressure um, uh, because again, we viewed it as a, as a legitimate application. But the last point is, and here's I think the, the point I really want people to understand. Had a bubble in Bitcoin developed and not at 19,000, but perhaps at, say, 190,000 or even more, then there'd been a popping. And if people had gotten hurt seriously, there would have been calls, legislative calls, to suppress or ban Bitcoin. And I believe that because of the, the, the readjustment of the price and the period that it's, that, that's now taken for Bitcoin um, to, to, I think, establish itself, there is much more less legislative pressure to try to find a way to suppress it or stop it. I think mm -hmm. that actually, in hindsight, what's happened is for the long-term good because Bitcoin is now much f more firmly part of the landscape. And um, I think that had there been a, a, a continuation, this is my own personal view, a continuation mm -hmm. and then eventually a popping of the bubble, there could have very well been very harmful efforts in Congress and elsewhere that could have done lasting harm to this asset class. In fact, I think it's now established as part of the new digital landscape with a legitimate place, so so that's there. Now, to, to your point, thank you for allowing me to address that because I want your audience to know that we did approach this, I think, sensibly, carefully, and in the long run, I think it, it's, it's turned out in a good way for Bitcoin. Well, can I, can I, just, can I just say, I, I agree with everything you just said, and I guess the, my question on the ETF side, without putting you too yeah, much on the spot, because it is another regulatory body, is, is more to contrast the two styles, because I feel that the CFTC's approach is very thoughtful and correct. Um, and the SEC, you know, understandably has some concerns over how price discovery is formed for the asset class, but that doesn't change the fact that there is a quasi-public product now with a ton of liquidity that is harmful for retail investors and the ETF itself. I agree. Now, I, I will say that, you know, I work very closely with, with my colleagues at the SEC, with Chairman Clayton and others, and I have a lot of respect uh, for their efforts to maintain the 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 uh, um, uh, the integrity of their core uh, framework, it's a different framework than we had at the SEC. They're a rules based regulator. The CFTC is a principles based regulator. The mm -hmm. SEC requires commissioners to approve uh, new ETFs. That the CFTC our approach is the self certification approach. So we have different mm -hmm. institutional, legal, regulatory frameworks. 
I must say I, I'm, I, I, I'm sensitive to comments that, that Commissioner Peirce has put forward, saying that she could cite other products that, that may have some of the shortcomings in, in their underlying market that are being cited as the reason to uh, stymie efforts at ETFs. So uh, I follow the debate very closely. I, I also, though, honor the code of former regulators not to, not to uh, criticize current regulators. I think we, we uh, live in a world today where people are much too ready with, uh, and, and, and willing to criticize uh, people in, in, in tough environments and tough jobs, and, and I'm not one of them. So I'm not going to criticize, although I think it's very sensitive. I understand why the community is concerned. I'm proud of what we did at the CFTC. And as we've just talked about, even sometimes allowing new products to go forward does comes with its own set of criticism. Um, mm-hmm. Those who are critical of SEC's uh, non-action, uh, well, perhaps they might be a little less critical of our action that we took at the CFTC. Um, and so uh, with that, um, uh, let's, let's, let's move on. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, but, you know, potentially, I, I, it's, it's certainly a mindset that I wish was more pervasive in Washington, D.C. right now because uh, then so many of our institutions wouldn't appear so broken. Um, you know, we we could spend an hour on stable coins and, and digital dollars. I know that you have some time constraints, so we, we want to move through um, quite a bit of information in, in a relatively uh, compressed manner. Yes. Talk about the Digital Dollar Foundation and how you came to dive in with both feet to to this particular part of the market because stable coins had a breakout moment last year with Libra. Um, and then with the, the very fast follow-up with the Chinese uh, digital currency electronic payment um, initiative. So, so speak to the urgency uh, and, and why this digital dollar foundation is so important in your mind. Thank you very much, Ryan. So, so you know, both Libra and the, the digital yuan project that China has been barked upon for several years now are good reasons for the U.S. to say, you know what, we really do need to prioritize uh, the digitization of our own fiat currency. But, mm-hmm. but it's not just for those reasons alone. It really goes back to the analogy I gave earlier that, you know, you look around us, our bridges and our tunnels, our airports, our public transportation systems are all antiquated, in many cases obsolete. In a lot of cases, you need to actually tear down the old structure. And and I also feel that that we need to look at the architecture of our fiat currency. A lot of what's being developed today commercially, are workarounds for the lack of a digital infrastructure for our own fiat currency. And I really think that what China's doing and, and, and what others are doing should, should, should catalyze us to realize that we need to relook at the architecture of our own currency, of our fiat currency. Mm-hmm. It is, um, the use cases are plentiful. One of the ones I love to cite is um, uh, a... a, a, a uh, an immigrant in this country may receive a photograph of their granddaughter back in their homeland and want to send them $20 back. Well, the photograph will appear instantaneously, but the $20 may take two weeks to get there at a cost of 7 to 17%. Why can't they just simply email back with the photograph um, the money? And, you know, if you apply that to the billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of remittances that, that move in dollars around the globe, um, you look at the unbanked and, and uh, communities that we have in our own in our own cities and our own rural areas that we have around the world. A digital dollar would provide a great deal of social utility, 
but also it would, it would it, it's almost like the decision to land a, a, a man on the moon. All of the new commercial enterprises that will co- come out of the science of digitizing a dollar will lead to the launch of uh, any number of, of new commercial enterprises. China has patented over 80 patents for a digital yuan. They recognize that whoever who builds and engineers and owns this architecture will own the economic future. The United States needs to build that architecture. Do you think that those patents are defensible? Uh, For something this big, uh, it it seems almost impossible to actually get into a patent dispute over how you manage your trillions of dollars worth of currency. It's it's like, it sounds good in theory, but in reality, there, there's no way. I agree, right? But wouldn't you rather be the one who's owning the patent, defending it, than the one who's trying to attack it and, and who's getting challenged at every juncture, right? It's you, you know, I I, I would. I, I guess the question becomes: Does the U.S. already have an innovator's dilemma? Because you know, one critique is: Well, the dollar is already digitized, right? You know, the dollar is already electronic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, explain explain the difference. Yeah, so so I use the difference. What I mean by electronic is, yeah, we have a we. It's still an account space system. You know, most money is basically exists by recording on bank ledgers, and if the bank goes down or the other intermediary goes down, try getting your money, right? Well, of course, we have insurance for that, but it's not the same thing as getting your money. It's electronic. It it exists on bank uh, bank electronic ledgers, but that's not fiat. That's not the same thing as a $100 bill in your pocket or $100 of digital fiat in your wallet. And so what we're talking about is a form of of tokenized, digitized fiat currency that enjoys the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, that is legal tender, both um, in a a virtual online um, uh, commercial uh, marketplace. You ultimately see this getting commercialized because, you know, I don't think I'm alone in, in expressing the skepticism. You know, the, the, the Chinese socially are able to move at an extremely rapid clip because the government is, is relatively effective and, and it's very technocratic. In the U.S., look at the last major tech initiative, maybe healthcare.gov, which was a, an unmitigated disaster, right? So, so you look at, at Libra, and you look at Facebook and some of the other parties that they, they got around the table, they're some of the best technical minds and economic minds uh, in the world because they have access to that, that pool of capital. To assume then that any digital dollar initiative is going to be built by the government versus the tech industry, particularly the tech industry in the U.S., it seems crazy to me. Right. That, um, how, how, do, how do we bridge the gap? Because that's where I feel like much of the hesitation is right now. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Which is why we, we'll never do it the way China's do it. You know, when China mm-hmm. does something big, whether it's build a, 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 a blue water navy or to build a digital yuan, it's driven by the Communist Party, right? The Communist Party has recently told 30 million Communist Party members to read a single book about the blockchain. And in that book, it says that the, the future is a digital yuan future. Um, when Europe does something big, the public sector, the central banks and the other major public sector institutions develop the, the, the framework and then they tell the private sector to innovate to that framework. Mm-hmm. But when we do big things in the United States, whether it's land a man on the moon or build the internet, we always do it as a public-private partnership. 
government lays, lays out some foundational principles, but it's the private sector that brings the intellectual capability, the engineering capacity, the, the capital formation capability to bear. I talked a little bit about capital markets, brings our capital mm-hmm. markets to bear. And so um, that's what we're proposing. We're prop- and that's why we've launched the Digital Dollar Project, to be that private, uh, private sector partner with the public sector in going forward with this. We, I have, having run a government agency and tried to launch a, a modest AI effort in the agency and having spent five years begging for money to fund it, I know how difficult it is for the federal government to um, initiate these and institute these and implement such technological programs by themselves. The only way we will build a digital dollar is with a public and private partnership. Having said that, when we do those things, we do them better than anybody else. And so if we do this right, we should be able to build the architecture of a digital dollar in the next a digital century to come. And I say one other thing. I believe that the presence of the dollar as a reserve currency during the last two generations has been a net good, not just for the United States, but for the world. I don't think it was a coincidence. I actually think it was a consequence of the primacy of the dollar as a global reserve currency that led to the last 50 years of enormous wealth creation, an enormous rise out of poverty of hundreds of millions of people around the globe into the middle class. It took place because of the globalization of global markets and of commerce. And that came alongside the prominence of the dollar. I think the generation in front of, in front of us still needs a strong dollar reserve currency in the world. But the only way that's gonna happen is by digitizing it to be there as a foundational point for digital commerce in the next generation to come. I have a final question because uh, I want to make sure that we stick to time as I promised at the onset. Um, how, how do you see this public-private partnership playing out? Because we have Paxos, we have GUSD, we have USDC from Circle and uh, Coinbase. We have Libra, which is now going to uh, create a digital dollar instead of a basket to start out. There are several implementations. Will one of them win an RFP? Will all of them develop in the same sandbox? Um, what, what is the outlook for how this plays out in practice over the course of the next one to two years, which are really the, the foundational years? And unlike most other you know, U.S. regulatory public-private partnership initiatives, um, th- this is more akin to the space race with the Soviet Union than anything, I think, in the last several decades because of how quickly the Chinese are moving. Um, I'm curious how you see that process playing out, given that we always have dysfunction around elections. We always have um, you know, a, a, a bit of uh, reluctance to move quickly on some of these things. And, and perhaps our, regulata- our regulators and, and congressmen are, are too timid in this regard. Great, Ryan. So, so at the core of the Digital Dollar Project is the Digital Dollar Foundation. And it's formed as a not-for-profit, really to make clear that we're not trying to compete with any of the commercial enterprises that you named. What we're trying to do is, is lead and catalyze movement to creating that new um, digital uh, architecture for the dollar on which those commercial enterprises will be built. In fact, mm-hmm. I had breakfast just yesterday with the Paxos, uh, Paxos team uh, at my office in New York, 
talking about how they believe that if we are able to create a digital dollar, it would provide the architectural foundation for all their efforts to create digitized uh, security settlement, uh, digitized uh, clearing, all of the infrastructure of a modern digital marketplace will rely on that foundation of a digital dollar. So they're very supportive of our efforts. So how will it work out? Well, I can't map every step, just as when, when President Kennedy said, we're gonna get a man on the moon, he couldn't have said back then, every technological innovation that need to be achieved to get there 10 years later, but you set a direction. And what we're trying to do with the digital dollar project is set some core direction to liaise with people at the Fed, not just at the Federal Reserve Board, but with the, the Boston Fed, the San Francisco Fed, others within the Fed system that are working on different pieces of this, to work with universities like MIT, like Stanford, and others that are working on pieces of them, to help integrate different points of view to find where the consensus point of view is. And we'll be soon announcing, very shortly, in the next few weeks, our advisory board for the Digital Dollar Project, where we're bringing together leading figures, and it's going to be individuals, not institutions, but leading figures from both sides of the political aisle, from this administration, from past administrations, from academia, from ethicists, from commercial enterprise, from, from commercial banks, from central banks, to bring a broad cross-section of viewpoints to bear to find where are the consensus approaches to developing this and communicating. Again, it's what we did well in the development of the internet, it's what we did well before that with, with, with the space race. And I think your analogy is very similar. And in an op-ed I did in the Wall Street Journal last fall, I think we are at a Sputnik moment. And I think if, you know, coronavirus aside, whether that causes a delay, I think sometime in the future, you're going to see China moving forward with their efforts. I certainly mm -hmm. know that our friends in Europe are moving forward with their efforts. Sweden still soon will be a paper cashless digital fiat economy. And I think as those efforts move forward, the pressure on the U.S. to move forward is going to increase. And we want to be there at the Digital Dollar Project to say, welcome to the team. We've done a lot of the, of the early thinking on this. Let's work together. Let's make this happen. And, and let's do this. Well, I think uh, we, we feel like we're in good hands with Crypto Dad, and that's about as inspirational uh, a, a rallying cry as I think we're going to get, uh, particularly on the regulatory side. So thank you for, uh, for joining today and, and for being so open-minded and proactive about this industry. Um, we'll, uh, we'll hopefully do it again real soon as, as this is going to be an ongoing effort, as, as you say, for, for many years now. Thanks, um, Chris uh, can be found at Giancarlo MKTS on Twitter, at Giancarlo Markets MKTS. Um, and uh, you can catch him at uh, Looking For and Gallagher as a senior counsel, but I'm sure he's going to be on the conference circuit pretty soon. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll do something together uh, in the not too distant future. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern Time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.